1: Jones, Australia's
2: leading voice.
1: Well, good evening and thanks for your company. I've had a week and a bit off. I'm back right here on ADH-TV. Big night tonight. We've got Fred Paul straight after me with his new 9pm show. You'll love what Fred has to say because he's got brain power. His first guest will be the new Northern Territory Senator, a lady to whom we often speak on my show, Jacinta Price. I was a proud referee for her nomination for pre-selection. She's belled the cat big time on this push to introduce an Indigenous voice to Parliament. More of that with Fred at 9pm. He'll also be joined by the talented former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker. She's a huge loss to Canberra, but I suspect we'll see her back there very soon. Amanda Stoker is now with the Menzies Research Centre and she's got plenty to say in this hopefully rebuilding phase of the Liberal Party. Now, remember, you can stream TV on your television, by searching ADH TV on the Apple TV App Store and Google Play Store. It's all very easy to do. Monday to Thursday, you'll have me, Alan Jones, at 8 o'clock, followed by Fred Paul at 9pm. We also welcome the thinker and writer Nick Cater onto the ADH TV platform. Nick's Battleground begins this Friday at 8pm. We are the streaming service for Australians who aren't afraid to speak their mind. Always remember this, as I've told you often, my job as a broadcaster, is to tell you things as they are, not as we'd like them to be. Another Australian who expresses views which may be unfashionable to the lefties and most in the mainstream media, but more often than not is vindicated, Senator Pauline Hanson. I'll speak to her soon. I had Pauline on the show a few weeks back, remember, and she said this welcome to country stuff is now overdone and she wouldn't put up with it any longer. Well, she followed through with that, walking out of the Senate chamber last week. I'll also speak with Nationals MP Keith Pitt, the federal member for the Queensland seat of Hinkler, based around Bundaberg. This bloke is relatable and he can talk about the issues which matter to the punter in the punter's language. He's against this net zero folly. And for that stance, of course, obviously hasn't won a place in the woke leadership ranks of the National Party under the new leader, David Littleproud. He also makes interesting comments on the Albanese government's determination to end the cashless debit card. And he's been outspoken on the failure of the Albanese government to do enough on the foot and mouth disease crisis. So plenty on. It's an action packed night. Let's get into it. Look, just before we get into it, as I said, uh, my thanks to the new member of our team, Fred Paul, for standing in for me for part of last week. Fred has an excellent mind and fits beautifully into what we're doing here, saying things as they are, or as we say, the last defence of truth. Well, it's now pretty clear that the Labor government is in power in Canberra and damaging ideological stupidity is in the saddle. The new president of the Senate when Parliament sat last week, objected to starting each day with a reading of the Lord's Prayer. Christianity under siege on every front. I couldn't care less that she's an atheist and didn't want to say the prayer. That's her business. It has been read, though, by presiding officers since 1901. Well done to the Senate leader, Penny Wong, and the manager of government business in the Senate, Katie Gallagher, who said the Lord's Prayer is here to stay. Well, statues now are back in the news. And it apparently concerns some, now there's a the Labor government there, you can get away with anything, that there are too many statues of Captain Cook. So get rid of the memorials to our white pioneers. That's not all. It keeps coming. In Victoria, a decision to cancel plans to light up Melbourne's Shrine of Remembrance with rainbow colours in support of a new exhibition recognising LGBTQ plus veterans. Well, the plans were cancelled. But Labor's Victorian Deputy Premier says it's very disappointing. And then we've got the clincher. Prime Minister Albanese wants a new Aboriginal-only advisory parliament. Why? Because it would be, quote, a moving show of faith in Australian decency and Australian fairness from people who've been given every reason to forsake their hope in both, unquote. No decency, eh? No fairness? Albo, a big untruth. The Productivity Commission has estimated that for about 800,000 indigenous Australians, expenditure and this was 2015-16, expenditure for indigenous Australians, 33.4 billion. And as at January 25, 2021, native title was determined to exist over more than 40 percent of Australia. 13.7 percent of Australian land is exclusive native title. they're government figures. But there's to be a voice and the constitution will be altered. Albo, I don't think so. Energy prices going through the roof, I warned of that, but blame the Liberal government. Yet wind and solar power in the last year of the Morrison government grew by 21%. Electricity produced from black coal in the past three months to June was the lowest for that quarter on record. Get it? Renewables up, coal-fired power down, don't renewables make cheaper power? Isn't coal fired power expensive? But the energy market operator says the average wholesale price for electricity in the past three months was double the previous record. Funny that. I thought renewables made things cheaper. Interest rates will come up again tomorrow. Jim Chalmers says this will all be temporary. Now, it's no use blaming the previous government, Jim, Treasurer. Labor went all out. You went all out. Fire and brimstone to win your spot on the Treasury benches. Your first job is to maintain confidence in our future. Language like we inherited a trillion dollars of debt with nothing to show for it, or the worst set of budget books. But hang on, if the Morrison government had followed Labor's advice to extend and expand JobKeeper or give $300 handouts costing $6 billion to get people jabbed, how much worse would it have been? We've got high inflation. Interest rates going up again. The supermarket's very unfriendly for shopping mums and dads. Vegetables up 16%, rent's going through the roof, but not a word from anyone in government as to how these costs will be addressed. If Treasurer Chalmers wants to rely on Treasury to push out figures, then he's heading for a whole heap of trouble. You see, in the March budget, a few months ago, Treasury for, what, March, April, May, June, July, five months ago, Treasury forecast inflation at 4.25%, falling to 3% in June next year, falling to 2.5% in June 2024. Miles off the mark, that's Treasury. What about those dopes at the Reserve Bank? They forecast inflation at 3.75% to June 30, 3.75. It'll go up again tomorrow, 6% now. Well, they say basically it'll fall. This is what what the Reserve Bank said. It would fall to 2.75% by June next year. Now, Jim Chalmers, you keep quoting Treasury, and if not Treasury, the Reserve Bank. None of this stuff can be believed. The only thing that can be believed is that the problems we face have been created by government and its instruments. Hopeless homework by the Reserve Bank and Treasury. Labor now wants over 80% of our power from renewables within eight years which would require $60 billion worth of new transmission infrastructure, which would send power bills beyond the roof. That's even if we could keep the lights on. You will pay. I've told you that for months and months. But the government came into government guaranteeing or promising reductions in your electricity bill by $275 a year. And the Greens want to stop all new coal and gas projects jeopardising two of our three biggest exports with less money coming into the budget that is already under strain. But Labor needs Greens' support in the Senate. So there you are, part of the last week. The President of the Senate doesn't want the Lord's Prayer, Knock down statues of white pioneers Try to light up Melbourne's Shrine of Remembrance with rainbow colours and a new Aboriginal-only advisory parliament. But in the real world, energy prices, supermarket prices and interest rates climbing and all we get is blaming the previous government. From the point of view of the Australian battler on Struggle Street, it has been a bad week. Labor supporters everywhere moving in for the kill. But the thing that will be killed is what I've warned about over and over again, the economy. This government is already delivering national economic suicide notes. I'll look at that tomorrow tomorrow in relation to energy. Well, the first news poll of the new government is out. Political parties fail because they are addicted to polling rather than seeking to persuade the voter to a particular point of view. Mind you, I have to say the capacity of modern governments to identify what matters to the electorate seems increasingly limited. While Anthony Albanese wants to talk about an indigenous voice to the parliament, there are still voters who haven't recovered from bushfires or floods and they're ignored. And following the floods, there are hundreds of thousands of potholes on local government roads all across Australia and there seems to be no will or capacity to do anything about these things that matter to the voter. And these potholes are a massive threat to road safety, especially at night. But back to the polls. Apparently, 61% of voters are satisfied with the Prime Minister's performance, a higher figure than any recent incoming Prime Minister, higher than Bob Hawke, higher than Kevin Rudd 10 percentage points higher than Scott Morrison. Nonetheless, the Labor primary vote is still at only 37%, which means 63% of the voters who were polled did not want Labor. Now, that figure is ominous for the government. Interestingly, the vote for the One Nation party, Pauline Hanson's party, has gone up. And one can only wonder whether that isn't a response to her on the second sitting day of the 47th Parliament walking out during the acknowledgement of country. Let me just go back before I talk to Pauline, go back a little bit here. I've said before that this welcome to country is now an almost permanent feature at the beginning of anything, not just the opening of Parliament or the State of Origin match, but on Qantas planes. If you go to the ballet for a night, it's welcome to country. Pauline Hansen said on this program in June, and I quote her, I'm sick of hearing it on Qantas flights. It was brought in by Ernie Dingo, it's not part of their culture, and more and more it's encroaching on our rights. She said, I don't believe in giving an acknowledgement to anyone, past, present or future. People have to earn that respect, unquote. I've made reference many times in the past to the work of the Australian historian Keith Windshuttle, who's on record as saying, and I quote, whenever Labor governments have gathered power in the past decade... They've made it compulsory for every government instrumentality and many independent organisations they fund to begin every public meeting with a ceremonial acknowledgement of Aboriginal traditional landowners, wrote Win Shuttle. This ritual is now virtually inescapable, from the opening of state and federal parliaments to writers' festivals, art exhibitions, academic conferences, school assemblies, indeed anywhere those in the public sector gather, unquote. Well, of course, since he wrote that, things have changed because it's everywhere. The state of origin, not a public sector entertainment, but there we are in full view around the world, welcome to country. And you've got this Senator Lydia Thorpe saying, with the authority that being a member of parliament confers, that our Australian flag had connotations of, quote, invasion and dispossession. And she wanted to question the, quote, illegitimate occupation of our country and for people to know, quote, whose land they live on and that the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty. Well, as the historian Keith Winshuttle has said, two decades ago, this ritual was unknown. It was introduced without public debate, let alone public support, and its authors have never been named or their purposes justified. Keith Winshuttle says that since the passing of the Native Title Act in 1993, quote, this has been foisted on a mystified public as though it had the sanction of deep Indigenous tradition. Well, Pauline Hanson has stuck to her guns and she joins me. Pauline, thank you for your time. Let me ask you this question. I don't want everyone to know where you live, but if I arrived at your doorstep and knocked on the door, you as a courteous woman, which you are, would open the door and say to me, welcome, which would be an acknowledgement (coughs) that I wasn't in my own place. I was in someone else's place. But the someone else, you, were making me welcome. If, therefore, at almost every function we have welcome to country, doesn't this imply that it's not our country and we should be grateful that the Indigenous owners are making us welcome? Is that the argument?
2: That is the argument, Alan. There is welcome to country and there's acknowledgement of country. So acknowledgement is basically saying that the traditional owners own the land that we now stand on. If we don't speak up about this and protest over this acknowledgement to country, we, the people, have gone along with this and accepted that they are the traditional owners of land. I may be, you know, out on the left wing here, whatever I'm saying here, you know, but what I'm saying, Ellen, is if we don't speak up against this welcome to country or flags on the floor of Parliament that hasn't been endorsed by the Australian people, we are going to head down the path of dividing us as a nation... They own 32% of the native title land now as it is. Now they're pushing for welcome to country and the uh, acknowledgement of country and also the voice to parliament. If we don't object to this, we are going to be strangers in our own land. We will be our land that we own, our housing will actually be then challenged if we ever become a republic that is, we have acknowledged this native title land and we will be paying them again uh, uh, for our land.
1: That, that's correct. You see, Australia Day then becomes Invasion Day. But again Wind Shuttle, Keith Windshuttle, the historian says, under international law Australia has always been regarded as a settled country, according to the legal judgments in international law both here and around the world. He said until the law changes, there is no basis on which to say in invaded. But Pauline, this stuff is taught in universities, schools. We are browbeating young people to the point of intimidation, which prevents them from challenging these notions.
2: The, the younger generation comes through the educational system and the universities have to go along with this way of teaching; otherwise, they won't get passed in yes, their classes. That's correct. So they won't achieve what they yes. want to achieve. As the older generation dies out. We're we know the country to to have been what it was like. You know, these ones has been brainwashed in the educational system. Here we have Lydia. Thorpe. she's an activist. She's there. She's infiltrated the Parliament. She's not going to divide us. She, you know, she is dividing us. She's not bringing us together and well, trying to close. Well, the just gap. let me ask you this about whole her. Thing about the boys, let me ask Alan. you about
1: her. Sorry, Pauline. When you walked out, she yes. said. She said. I was immediately furious to see such blatant disrespect and racism in my workplace. She referred to you talking about creating a unified nation, said, yet you come out with hate speech like that. I mean, she describes you as the racism poster girl. How do you respond to that?
2: I think she's a racism poster girl. I really do. You know, what comes out of her mouth, no-one criticises her. What I've had to endure over the past 26 years for my standing up and bringing to, to, to the point of informing people what is happening to our country, as Jacinda Price said, she knows that I care about the Aboriginal people. She's seen with the Aboriginal people. I've travelled to these communities. I actually understand the Aboriginal people. They don't want what's been through thrown That's at correct. them and rammed down right. their throats You're by these activists. Right. And they right. don't care about the voice to parliament. No. They don't care about no. the, the Aboriginal flag. Mm. There is an agenda here, Alan. If I can tell you, viewers, there is an agenda here. So this is the chance for Australians to vote down the voice to parliament. You know what? I was reading this today, what Albanese has put out. Just just listen to the third one here. The parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Powers. That means that they will totally control it. We had ADSIC, Alan. I spoke about it in my maiden speech. Eight years later, both sides of parliament got rid of ADSIC. It was a failed organisation, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, it cost at the time $2.2 billion. They were paying out $360 a day travelling allowance and $380 a day um, sitting allowance. This is going to be made up, and Mastery Langdon, when I spoke to her, she said, you're going to have, from a region, 36 people possibly on per region, and that's a voice to Parliament. We have a voice now. We have this a voice. This is nothing but, but what a about, takeover uh, of destroying it Well, well what about
1: Lydia Thorpe today, to our viewers, let me t- say, she branded the Queen today a coloniser. And she was called on to take the oath of allegiance, which is mandatory for all parliamentarians. She stood and walked to the front of the chamber with her fist raised and she kept reading the oath saying, quote, I, Sovereign Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely swear that I'll be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And she said that she became a senator with the intention to infiltrate the Senate and that, quote, colonisation of this country is coming to an end. Now, Pauline, if you or I had carried on like that, all hell would break loose. What sanctions yep. apply to Lydia Thorpe?
2: Well, absolutely nothing. And Sue Lyons did nothing but told her to read what was on the piece of paper. Actually, I, you know, if I was the president there, I said, right, out of here, you have not shown respect to this chamber. People, even the parliamentarians myself, we have to gain the respect of the public. The position itself as senator must be a position of respect, the, the, the word senator. If you lose that, she is losing that from this parliament. I don't respect her. I have no time for her. She is divisive. She's a nasty piece of works. She shouldn't be on the floor of parliament. Now I say to anyone in Victoria who has any standing, who's actually on the roll in Victoria... Please challenge her validity to actually take up a position in Parliament because she- She has said she's infiltrated it. She doesn't respect the Queen. She doesn't respect her position. She doesn't respect the Parliament. I'd like it to be challenged.
1: Absolutely. Good stuff. I see Jacinda Price made a point about your uh, welcome to country response. She says, we don't want to see all these symbolic gestures. We want to see, and of course she wants action rather than symbolism. Uh, A spokesman for you was quoted as saying, like many non-Indigenous Australians, Senator Hanson considers this country belongs to her as much as it belongs to any other Australian Indigenous or otherwise. I should say I'll have something to say about this later in the program. But Pauline, where, where is this taking us? I mean, someone's got to take a stand. Is Peter Duckton going to support The Voice? I mean, somewhere along the line, someone has got to risk a level of unpopularity to change the direction in which the country's going.
2: I agree with you. Sorry, I don't have any hope for the Liberal or the Coalition Party at all. I think they're too gutless and I've said this for a long time. They don't want to be seen to to be opposing this. Also they want to know what the wording is. The fact is, Ellen, we, we have the means. We've poured $30 billion a year into this Aboriginal industry. We have so much corruption that's going on. It was Coalition government that expanded. It from not only the land council but the land and sea council, giving them the rights over Commonwealth and water on land and underground. This is what the coalition did. You have no idea what's been happening. I feel as if I've been a lone voice in the wilderness. I hope that to Centre Price now will back me up with what yes, I'm saying. Yes. We can make a difference. Well, of course. But every if time pose, you ask your question, yeah, if pose, you you get, you get so, called so, racist.
1: Sorry, yeah, that's just. A, if you oppose it, you'll be a racist. I, I'm sure you'd be interested to note. Pauline, that Malcolm Turnbull, of all people, said in his memoir that he wasn't, quote, comfortable with the Constitution establishing a national assembly open only to the members of one race. Now, the Prime Minister Albanese said at the weekend that Aboriginal people hadn't been consulted. There are 11 federal MPs identifying as Aboriginal. The last two ministers for Indigenous affairs are Aboriginal. What are we on about?
2: Yeah. Alan, let me make this point before we finish up. In 1967, it was put to a referendum to actually change the constitution um, to actually bring the Aboriginal people on board in the census. That happened. It was left up to Parliament for the wording. Section 51.26 of the Australian Constitution states that the Commonwealth shall have powers to make specific laws for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of any state. That is already there. If you go back to what I read about The Voice... What's the difference? They have the, the powers under Already. the Constitution to make Already. specific laws for Already. them now as it is.
1: Absolutely. Well, Don't I tell you.
2: vote for the voice in Parliament. You yeah. will lose our nation uh, altogether. Well, it we won't will work. be divided. It
1: won't happen, I can tell you. It won't happen. And if they're not prepared to give us any detail about this so-called voice, then the answer is vote no. Look, keep at it. I hope well, you find the energy and the courage to keep you. going. It's very critical. Always <laughs> great to talk to you. Talk to you again soon.
2: Thanks, Alan. There she is, Pauline Hanson,
1: and she's got guts. You see, that's the point. She just says the Liberal Party don't have the guts. Why aren't the Liberal Party saying, hang on, we're not approving anything without any kind of detail? But what's Julian Lisa say? Oh, well, the next step, we need the detail. No, Julian, that's the first step. I will have something further to say about this later in the program. Well, look, thankfully, there are things happening in the world removed from the blame game that's taking place in Canberra. As I mentioned, Labor went all out to win government yet now are whinging about what they've inherited. I sense they're now realising that much of what they campaigned on will further divide Australia and make even more precarious the well-being of all Australians. But that apart, I don't know if you caught up with the recently completed World Athletics Championships in Eugene, Oregon. There was a 22-year-old American, Sydney McLaughlin. She's written herself into a remarkable history. She was in 2016 one of the youngest athletes ever to qualify for the US Olympic team at the age of 16. In Eugene, they ran the final of the women's 400 metres flap, that's the women's 400 metres on the track, not long before the final of Sydney McLaughlin's 400 metres hurdles. These are world titles. In the women's 400 metres final, the seventh place getter in a field of eight ran 50.78, quick, 50.78. But with 10 hurdles in front of her, in the women's 400 metre hurdles, Sydney McLaughlin ran 50.68 seconds, a world record almost two seconds faster than the girl who came second, who is the third fastest 400 metre hurdler in history. She ran a ridiculously quick 52.27, but Sydney McLaughlin's 50.68 must rank as one of the greatest sporting achievements in the history of any sport. Well, that, of course, is good news. Meanwhile, the Commonwealth Games run in Birmingham. And I have to say, while it isn't a world-class competition, Australia being tickled up in the swimming. We certainly haven't had it all our own way, except in the relays, of course, where our depth favours, favours us. But as an Australian, I find it immensely disturbing to witness this pylon. on towards the gifted Australian 24-year-old Kyle Chalmers. At 18 years of age, the breathtaking gold medal winner in the Rio Olympics 100-metre freestyle. In 2018, at the Commonwealth Games, on the Gold Coast, he won gold in the 200 freestyle. In Tokyo, he won silver in the 100 freestyle. This is a transparently gifted and decent man. He'd previously been in a relationship with Emma McKeon, who's now written her name into the history books, as the most successful athlete in Commonwealth Games history, having won her 11th gold medal last night in Birmingham in the 50 metres freestyle. And she's not finished yet. She'll win more than that. But in what has disturbed a lot of lovers of sport, the focus has not been on performance and achievements, even Olympic champions, but on a 25-year-old Queenslander, Cody Simpson, variously referred to as a pop star. I think I gave Cody Simpson his first ever interview When he was very young, he went to America, had some singing success. He was always, as a schoolboy, a brilliant talent. But as a swimmer, he is not world class, though his comeback into the pool has been most notable. Kyle Chalmers was in a relationship with Emma McKeon. The detail I don't know, and nor are we entitled to know. But this modest and achieving lady has now hooked up with Cody Simpson. That should be nobody's business. But somehow or other... In all of this, Kyle Chalmers is the villain, to the point where he has conducted interviews when all he's asked about are questions related to the so-called love triangle. I saw him interviewed last night by the former champion Kate Campbell. Both were outstanding. But to see Kyle Chalmers, a virtual broken young man over all of this attention for the wrong reasons, certainly calls into question the principles of journalism. For whatever reason, Kyle Chalmers feels piled on. He's a magnificent Olympic champion that Cody Simpson will never be. He shouldn't be discussed in the same breath, except that Cody Simpson has linked up with his former girlfriend. That should have nothing to do with Kyle Chalmers, nor should he be expected to be jumping up and down at the pool in relation to the former love of his life, Emma McKeon. These are young people. They're human beings before they're swimmers. The media focus here has been appalling, Kyle Chalmers deserves to be treated as the champion he is and Cody Simpson on pool deck should be treated as just another swimmer until his achievements in the pool entitle him to something better. They're giving out gold medals in Birmingham. None to those journalists who've pursued Kyle Chalmers with idiotic and unworthy questioning. Well, you may remember I spoke last month to to Keith Pitt the Lion of Bundaberg, they call him, a 53-year-old National Party member for the seat of Hinkler. Now, he was the minister in the Morrison government for resources and water. We now have legislation introduced into the parliament for a 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by 2030. That would mean 82% of our electricity would come from renewables. Well, that's what Labor thinks. There is not a hope in hell of that happening. Bjorn Lomborg, the internationally acclaimed president of the think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus Centre, issued a warning at the the end of only last month. Now, he's no climate denier. He's saying it's the way we're going about it. And he argued that energy costs have increased by 26% across industrialised economies last year and will rise globally by another 50% this year. To the argument that it's all about the Russian war on Ukraine, wrote Lomborg, quote, prices were already rising because of climate policies designed to choke fossil fuel investment. Sensibly went on, huge price rises are the inevitable result of forcing more energy out of an increasingly starved system. And he wrote, the climate policy approach of trying to push consumers and businesses away from fossil fuels with price spikes is causing pain with little climate payoff. He wrote, solar and wind are still only capable of meeting a fraction of global electricity needs, unquote. And accurately, he said, even with huge subsidies and political support, solar and wind delivered just 9% of global electricity in 2020. He wrote, Germany's on track to spend more than half a trillion dollars on climate policies by 2025. It has only managed to reduce fossil fuel dependency from 84% in 2000 to 77% today. Well, Keith Pitt joins me, and he has been making those very points. Keith, thank you for your time. But here we've got legislation mandating a 43% reduction, which implies 82% of electricity from renewables by 2030. Don't tell me the Coalition is going to support this stuff.
0: Well, it's good to be with you, Alan. And the short answer is no, I won't be supporting it. I know that. (laughs) Uh, But it's not over yet. It's got to go across to the Senate. I'm sure they'll make changes with the Greens. It'll come back with another number. Uh, But once again, I mean, everyone's talking about 40%, 42%, 45%. No one's talking about what the the real issue is, and that is how much will it cost and who's paying? And we know it's the Australian people that will have to pay. Mm. Uh, And this is just madness. To legislate this, to now have the courts look at every single project across the country to see if it meets those criteria, it's really dangerous.
1: Very dangerous. Bjorn Lomborg said rightly three-quarters of the 21st century's emissions will come from China in their African Latin America and they won't accept slower economic growth to address a 2% problem 50 years from now. Keith, I mean, how come the mob in Canberra don't understand this?
0: Well, we keep hearing that this is a global challenge and you've got the UK and others have all shored their manufacturing. That's been picked up by China. Uh, India is really strolling into manufacturing as well. They're not going to give up their competitive advantage. It's only the West that's making those sorts of decisions. I mean yeah. Australia is a one percent contributor. As Absolutely. I've said many well, times, Alan, I just yeah, want to see yeah, we, yeah, our yeah. response I know. be proportional to our contribution.
1: But see, I mean Lomborg has made this point that if we want to talk zero emissions by twenty fifty, it will cost sixteen percent of GDP. For us, that's three hundred billion a year. It's absurd.
0: Oh, it's way more than that. I mean, AMO's estimates are around $360 billion just in the electricity network. Yes. Uh, and that won't get you there. It'll be a trillion dollars. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, and where does that come from? It's all those hard-working mums and dads. It's the ones yeah. that don't have a lot of dispensable cash. It's the ones that have to buy second-hand cars. They can't buy a new electric car even with a subsidy.
1: Unbelievable. Your colleague, Matt Canavan, has said that once we saw the energy catastrophe here... And in Europe, net zero should have been all over bar the shouting. I mean, Keith, you and I have talked about this before. We've got 2,000 years of coal under our feet and technology is improving every day. Why wouldn't we join countries like Vietnam, South Korea, Japan, and India in building high-efficiency, low-emissions, coal-fired power stations?
0: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, they're buying our coal to yeah. run those exact facilities yes. because it's high quality and they can get it and it's close and we're incredibly reliable. Technology makes a difference. I mean, uh, even the International Energy Agency says uh, you know, a Healy coal plant uh, combined with CCS is a 90% reduction in emissions. Well, that'll do me. It'll work when you push the go button. You don't have to worry about the weather. Just go and ask any farmer. If you rely on the weather for an outcome, you just never know what's going to happen.
1: Absolutely. And I know as a minister, you made the point that since 2005, we've reduced our emissions more quickly than Canada, Japan, New Zealand and the United States. If reducing emissions was important, which I don't think it is, carbon dioxide is a source of all plant life. Which brings us to this foot and mouth. Do you think there's a hidden agenda here on foot and mouth? I suppose they'll laugh at me for saying this, it'd wipe out the cattle population and therefore you'd reduce the methane output and reduce carbon dioxide emissions.
0: I mean, at a very practical level, that's true. I, I'd be horrified to think anybody even thinks about that. I agree, in government. Yeah. Uh, You're talking about losing decades of breeding. Yes. Uh, losing all of your livestock. I mean, there, there will be fires on the horizon for months because you've got to destroy all of your herd. Yep. Uh, Anything that we are doing, uh, we must overreact to this risk, not underreact. Mm. Once it's here, it's too late. Uh, And, you know, Murray, what, we hear all the uh, comparisons to L-platers and training wheels, none of that matters. Uh, The Prime Minister, Prime Minister Albanese, should take over this response. He should have done it weeks ago. Yes. And we need to make sure we protect this country and its food security. But but see, what is up with these people? Now, Murray Watt,
1: Watt, when he was in opposition, said quarantine facilities should be built everywhere to prevent the introduction of coronavirus into Australia. He doesn't seem to care about foot and mouth disease.
0: Oh, he certainly had a change of heart, Alan. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he was put in the job to, to win seats in Queensland. It's, it's not about AGS for the Labor Party, as you know, uh, but we've got to be so careful. We, we've had so many reports of people coming back who weren't, weren't warned, weren't checked, didn't know. Yes. Uh, they didn't have foot bars in most of the airports. Uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands, yes. of returning travellers, all of whom are at risk, uh, and it puts our livestock at risk. So do you think farmers are, as we speak
1: tonight, do you think farmers are sufficiently protected?
0: Absolutely not. Uh, I know they are incredibly worried. Uh, We've seen cattle prices dropping because there's a lot more coming on the market. People are concerned about the risk. Now that risk has increased to roughly a 10% chance of an outbreak in the next five years. Well, I think that's too high. I don't know if you have a flutter or not, Alan, but I'm sure if you're on the punt, you'd be back in plenty of 10 to 1 chances to track on the weekend, mm. but we don't want to see this. Uh, it, yeah. it would be a disaster for our I country. mean, you
1: are right. I was with farmers uh, last week. This is all they were talking about. And I know you and I, I've got a stack of correspondents. They're desperate to try and get some sense into the government. I mean, why can't
0: people be quarantined on their return? Well, I mean, they're also worried about our international reputation and oh, in trade. Yeah. Uh, because it's definitely have an impact. Uh, This is why the Prime Minister's office should take over the response. So it demonstrates how serious the government is uh, about ensuring we keep FMD out. And we should take all opportunities and look at all options. And I really still think... I agree. ...that we should look at a ban on travel into those high-risk Absolutely. countries... ...until it is under control. Absolutely. Do for foot and mouth what we
1: argued for coronavirus. Let me go to this cashless debit card. Here's another absolute mess. You've said it's helped people in the Bundaberg and Harvey Bay areas. Just for our viewers, it'll be scrapped in September under laws to be brought into the parliament if they can get it through the Senate. Now, you've got 6,000-odd people on the cashless debit card
0: in your electorate. Has it worked? Uh, Absolutely, Alan. And the ANAO report that the Labor Party is waving around as justification actually has a table in it that says that it works, that it does reduce social harm, uh, that it does ensure that people are buying the essentials of life and not uh, grog or spending it on pokies. So Labor will always make decisions based on the ideology, never about practical outcomes or how you get to where you want to go. You've only got to look at the proposal for the voice... Yeah,
1: just for our viewers, under this debit card, 80% in certain areas, 80% of the welfare payments would be quarantined away from grog and gambling. Now, you've said in your area, and I've heard this elsewhere, that the card's had a positive impact on communities where kids are now going to school, they now have a lunch with them, they're getting the essential foods that they need, rents are being paid. Now, Amanda Rishworth said the card had caused people to feel shame and anguish. We're punishing them for being on welfare. I thought we were helping them, weren't we?
0: Oh, absolutely. It's just a debit card. It looks like every other debit card. I don't know too many operators at the fish and chip shop that check what sort of card you wave over the FPOS machine. But we have just... It's been almost impossible to get data. The Queensland Labor government won't give us anything from education or health or the police. But what we do have is reports from school principals, for example, that when it was introduced... They almost halved their breakfast club and almost doubled the amount of kids yes. doing extracurricular activities. Well, that, that will do me. See uh, uh, If we're looking for outcomes, this is how it happens. See, I mean, Keith, whether you're talking about
1: energy now or this thing, ideology seems completely blind. Amanda Rishworth says, I can't believe this, the cashless debit card users would, quote, regain the financial freedom they've been asking for. So... What would they be free to do? Spend it on grog and gambling. She said, I don't know, we'll help them with budgetary budgeting issues and voluntary, voluntary income management.
0: The woman's dreaming, Keith. Well, they're still free to get a job. They can go and be employed and spend their money however they like. Uh, but this is support from the taxpayer at a time when people desperately need it. Uh, and the concept that, you know, you want to spend more than 20% of what's provided by the taxpayer on alcohol or gambling or illicit substances. I I mean, is the Labor Party serious? This is what they want?
1: Absolutely. Now, just on this, the government will need all 12 Green senators, plus one other, for the bill to pass the upper house. Um, I see Sarah hanson young I mean, they're all drinking something. She said, we shouldn't be making those who are living in poverty, who are the most marginalised, we shouldn't be making their lives harder. I mean, the evidence that you've got, I've got, is that it's made their lives easier.
0: And strongly supported. It's supported by Indigenous elders and leaders and the people on the reference groups and all of those who are on frontline service provision, who actually work every single day in this space, and the police in particular, but they can't speak out because they're members of the public service, yes. which is run by the state. Yeah. So look, I just think Labor's got this wrong. Uh, it is a, uh, it's something which works. It's something which should be actually rolled out further, not got, not gotten rid of. Alan,
1: will they get the numbers in the upper house, in the Senate, to be able to get the legislation through? Of course
0: through? they will. Yes. Yeah. No, no, no doubt at all. Uh, the, the, the Greens have always been opposed. The Socialist Alliance out of Sydney is opposed, and once again. You know, this is individuals in Sydney and Melbourne telling regional people what they need to do in their own communities. It's mm. not them that live there. With taxpayers' money. Always good to talk to you, Keith. We'll
1: talk again soon. Great stuff. Common sense, which isn't common. Great to Keep, be You too. Keep well, Keith. There is Keith Pitt talking a lot of sense, particularly on the energy front. And, of course, this cashless debit card. Well, it's already starting in Canberra, isn't it? i have something more to say about that later in the program. Well, I made the point to Pauline that I'd have something further to say about this. Look, it almost follows, does it not, as night follows day, that governments, given time, will foul in their nest. Now, a mess in New South Wales. A minister, Alini Patinos, has been sacked after bullying accusations were level against her. The Premier Perrottet first supported her. Look, and I have to say, Dominic Perrottet is not the man who gave hope to the Liberal Party over values when he was first elected. He seems to have completely lost his way. Now there are supposedly, quote, further matters and Patinos has been sacked, but there's been no explanation. There are any number of workplace laws which prevent someone from being sacked without valid explanation. So one wonders where this matter will finish up. But there should be no overtures to the New South Wales Building Commissioner, David Chandler, who recently resigned. His work came under the portfolio responsibilities of Alini Patinos, but I'll have more to say about Chandler later. Later in the week, there should be no misgivings when he leaves, even though the job is important. The man in the job, Chandler, represented an unpleasant invasion into a crucial industry. Then in New South Wales, there's the business about former Deputy Premier John Barillaro and the Minister responsible, Stuart Ayres. There's been a witch hunt seeking to claim the scalp of Stuart Ayres. I'll make this point. In several roles that I've occupied, I've had cause to deal with Stuart Ayres. I regard him as one of the smartest men in the Parliament, indeed in the Liberal Party, but more importantly, fastidious about the way things are done and always on top of detail, a very rare capacity amongst politicians. He has stated two things as I see it. The decision to appoint John Barilaro was made at arm's length from him, but he believes, as I do, that Barilaro would be an excellent representative for New South Wales in New York. But this brouhaha, pales into insignificance compared with the emerging non-debate over the Indigenous voice to the Federal Parliament. This seems to be widely applauded with very little analysis. Not by me, I can tell you. What on earth is the Liberal Shadow Attorney-General Julian Lisa doing when he argued that, quote, the next step, unquote, is to, quote, explain to Australians how the voice will work, who will serve on it, how they'll be chosen, what it will do, and how will it it will address issues that concern Indigenous Australians," unquote. Well, look, I'm sorry, Julian, and Prime Minister Albanese, that should be the first step. This is a proposed amendment to the Constitution to be put to Australians in a referendum with no detail as to how the thing will work, who will be on it, how they'll be chosen, and what will be their function. I'm saying there should be no racial classifications in the Constitution. I am saying that race and ethnicity should have no place there. And anyone who so argues is not a racist. I know a lot of Aboriginal people. I've coached Aboriginal people. I've financially supported Aboriginal people. But that doesn't mean that I or others should want racial categories added to the Constitution. We're now entering this territory again, where anyone who might oppose the so-called voice will be intimidated and branded a racist, that we lack empathy and understanding. It is not racist to insist that there be no racial distinction in civic status. To be fair to Malcolm Termally's memoir, he wrote that he wasn't, quote, comfortable with the constitution establishing a national assembly open only to the members of one race, unquote. The first liberal principle should be, in keeping with basic liberal values, that any race-based body must be below the parliament in standing and power. That means the parliament should be able to abolish it. But if these Albanese words that we haven't been told of are inserted into the constitution, they can't be changed by the parliament. And the Albanese argument that Aboriginal people to date haven't been consulted does no justice to Anthony Albanese's necessary commitment to the truth. We have 30 Aboriginal land councils. Four control about half of the Northern Territory. There is a Council of Peaks, which represents 70 top Aboriginal organisations. And it claims, as Andrew Bolt has pointed out, quote, to be formal partners with Australian governments, unquote. And this business about Aboriginal people not having a voice, our last two ministers for Indigenous Affairs were Aboriginal. And as Jacinta Price has said over and over again, she's tired of symbolism. This would do nothing to fix Aboriginal disadvantage. And if the Prime Minister believes otherwise, he's living in a dream world. He was in the Northern Territory to make this announcement. Why didn't he investigate the proven claims of violence and brutality towards women that Jacinta Price has documented, which documentation has been ignored? A voice in the Parliament There are already, following May 21, 11 federal MPs identifying as Aboriginal. But in this referendum, we'll be asked simply, without any detail, and this is it, quote, do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, unquote. But the powers and the functions won't be decided until after you vote. Well, Prime Minister, I'm sorry, let me repeat what I said when a referendum was proposed to change Australia from a constitutional monarchy to a republic and they couldn't tell us how it would work. And I said, if you don't know, vote no. I'll be saying that here as often as is necessary. If you don't know the details and the referendum is put to you, vote no. Well, before we go to Fred Paul, when Fred filled in for me while I was away in Queensland at a funeral, I heard him talk about this push for Australia to become a republic and that its proponents are nine times out of ten from the left. That's true. Most Republicans hail from the left wing of politics. You see, these people get off on the symbolism. But isn't it funny, even hypocritical, I guess, that when you go around Australia and see who are the governors and the governor general? that darlings of the left. They'd be the first at a dinner party with their, their elitist mates in the leafy suburbs to denounce the royal family and our constitutional monarchy. In fact, our Governor-General David Hurley, while in London celebrating Queen Elizabeth's platinum jubilee, said, quote, a new discussion, unquote, would be had once the Queen passes. Hurley said, quote, when she goes, when, pardon me, when she goes, when she passes, Then the succession comes in. There is a new discussion in Australia, unquote. That was an appallingly insensitive thing to say. But our Governor-General's love of pomp and ceremony doesn't end there. Imagine my surprise when I saw that he, along with the Queensland Governor, Dr Jeanette Young, and her husband, were at a function in the UK with Prince Charles to celebrate the start of the Commonwealth Games. There they are. Just look at them, laughing in their champagne flutes, Dr Young, of course, was one of the out-of-control chief medical officers who thought she was running the state of Queensland, shutting borders, denying loved ones from attending funerals, not allowing those in northern New South Wales to cross to seek medical attention in Queensland hospitals, crushing Queensland's tourism and small business sector. She was untouchable. And for efforts, hey, good stuff if you can get it, Anastasia Palaszczuk appointed her governor. But remember, John Barilaro, the former Deputy Premier, who's au fait with the inner workings of governments and is connected with key stakeholders in industry and business in New South Wales, he can't be appointed a New South Wales Trade Commissioner to New York. That's apparently suspect, too political. But Dr Young, who is scaremongering and conducting hard border closures affecting thousands of people in the Tweed, Lismore and Ballina regions, her appointment as Governor was celebrated. No outcry there. It's the left, you see, they're okay. Am I missing something here? If you are firmly against the constitutional monarchy and believe that Australia tomorrow should become a republic, despite improving nothing for struggling families, shouldn't you decline the vice-regal patronage? That's the thing, isn't it? If we become a republic tomorrow, which Labor and other business and media elites want, your energy bill won't go down, nor will the price of your petrol or your groceries. There's no practical improvement from such a change. It's all feel-good symbolism and, if anything, will cost billions to transition. But there they are, the Governor-General and the Queensland Governor over in the UK clinking the glasses with Prince Charles. Hypocrisy, thy name is now republicanism. Well, that's it for me tonight. Now, stay with us, though, as Fred Paul starts right after this on ADH TV. You'll love his content as he takes on the issues that matter to you. So here he is, Fred Paul. Good night from me.